today as we look at the third step, the third stage of winning the war in your mind. We kicked this message series off a couple of weeks ago on Easter weekend, and it's named after the book of the same name by Pastor Craig Groeschel. And if you haven't had an opportunity to pick up this book yet, I'd highly encourage you to do so because I, I love this book. Uh, it's been very formative in my life. I read it a year ago, uh, listened to it on Audible, and then, and then read it uh, in person, right, in real life, read the real book, and it has had a profound impact on, on me. And as easy as it was to read through the book, I'm sure most of us in this room could, to, could walk through the book, read through the book in a couple of weeks. It's an easy read. But there are a couple of exercises in the book that are not easy to do. We often say here at New Life, it's simple but not easy. The book is simple to read, but some of the exercises were challenging. And with that in mind, as we walk through this this third step here today, I'm actually going to share some of those exercises with you because if I had to suffer, so do all of you. (laughs) No, they're just tremendously helpful. And so... Pastor Chris kicked us off a couple of weeks ago, and we are walking, like I said, through these four key stages that Craig Rochelle lays out. The first that Pastor Chris kicked us off with on Easter weekend was that we get to replace the lie with the truth, and then the next step is that we get to rewire our brains and renew our minds. Today, we're talking about reframing our minds And we get to restore our perspectives as a result of that. And then next week, we get to rejoice, which means reviving our souls and reclaiming our lives. So when Pastor Chris kicked us off a couple of weeks ago and talked about replacing lies with the truth, he reminded us that we're in a spiritual battle. We may not realize it, but we are. And in each and every one of us, in our minds, there are lies. There are lies that we believe about ourselves and others And as we read through God's Word, as we read through the truth of God's Word, we begin to identify those lies and we get to replace them with the truth as found in the Word of God. We're so thankful for the Word of God, aren't we? Because that allows us to have a true north. It shows us which way we ought to go. And as we begin to identify those lies, replace them with truth, Pastor Chris told us last week about creating these trenches of truth. These trenches of truth that as the lies are replaced with truth, these trenches are formed and we actually form new neural pathways in our mind, which is incredible to me, right? The neuroplasticity of the human mind. It's malleable. It can be formed and shaped no matter how old we are. It's maybe not as easy as we get a little bit older, but it's still there. And so as we replace the lies with the truth, these trenches are cut. And Pastor Chris said this, the key is... When we're in a rut produced by a lie, we must dig a trench of truth to get out. And this, as he mentioned, takes work and effort on our part, right? This isn't just some sort of passive experience. Pastor Chris actually used the word magic last week. He just thought God would magically make it better, but that's not the way that it oftentimes goes. It's an active process. In fact, we could argue that passivity is probably kind of what got us here to begin with. And here's what I mean. Most of us, I would contend, have no idea what we think, why we think it, and how it even got to be that way, right? We just go through life kind of reacting. And 
that's probably nothing wrong with that as far as like we just have done it for so long that we don't know any other way. But this is not a passive process, friends. We can't just always react, especially when we don't know why we're reacting that way or how it even happened that we're reacting that way, right? Pastor Greg, Craig Rochelle argues that the reason that we do this is because we all live our lives with lenses and filters always before us. We're always looking at the world through lenses. We're always filtering our experience through things that we don't quite understand, but they're there. And they can be helpful until they're not. I'll give you an example. For most of my adult life, I've lived with corrective lenses. Actually, I'll never forget the spring when I got glasses, that when I put my glasses on, I could see leaves, right? I was like, wow, there's that many on a tree? It was right after I'd gone for my permit test, which tells you how good the eye exam was at the Butler PennDOT location. I pushed my face into that machine. I had rings around it, but I passed. And then I got the glasses the way that it should be. So lenses can be helpful, right? They allow us to see things clearly. But now I wear contacts most of the time. And I did something a couple weeks ago that I'm sure any of you who have worn contacts have done. I put my left contact in my right eye, and I put my right contact in my left eye. Right? Anybody been there? That's a fun experience, isn't it? Wobbling around my house, right? I started in the bathroom. I hardly made it to the bedroom. I'm like, what's going on? Dizzy, felt a little nauseous, and then I went, oh, you goofball, right? So the lens is helpful until it's not. The lens is helpful until it's not. And when it comes to our personal filters or lenses, we're oftentimes not even aware that they're there, right? It's not even as obvious as when I put the glasses on or when I switch my contacts. We just kind of have lived with them for so long that we're not even aware that they're there. I'll prove it to you. Have you ever had a conversation with two different people? Same exact conversation, and it goes drastically differently, right? Why is it that some folks, when you give good constructive feedback, they say, thank you? And then other times when you give good constructive feedback, it's like you murdered a kitten in front of them, right? Like, why? Why does this happen? How can you have two people have the same conversation, and yet it goes so drastically differently? According to Pastor Craig Rochelle, that's our lenses at work. He actually says this, it's not the facts that differ, but the filters. We call these filters or lenses cognitive bias. And cognitive bias is just a fancy phrase that helps us understand that we all view the world based upon what's happened to us, right? Our experiences, our learning, and yeah, even some of those lies that Pastor Chris addressed in week one and addressed again in week two. Some of our cognitive biases are good, right? Some of them are good. I have a cognitive bias that sometimes stoves can be hot, right? So when you get near a stove, you kind of watch out. I was working on some electrical work today, which is like cognitive bias overload, right? You open up that panel, it looks like an alien spacecraft in there, and you're like, if I touch that, if I touch that copper thing, I'm going to be done, right? Even though the power's off, the cognitive bias is there. It's like electricity can hurt you. That's when a cognitive bias is helpful. 
but it's not always helpful. There's a danger there because, as we've said the past couple of weeks, a lie believed as truth will affect your life as if it were true. Pastor Craig Groeschel said that, and we've said it the past couple of weeks because it's vitally important. Because if we have lies in our cognitive biases, we just think that it's true, but they're not. These lies are pervasive, and as Pastor Chris mentioned, we have to work actively to identify them. And as we identify them, we begin to come to an understanding of what those lenses look like for us, both for the good and the challenges that they bring. So what are our own personal cognitive biases? We're going to talk about that a little bit today. What are our own personal cognitive biases? To help us get started, Pastor Craig Rochelle says something. It's helpful, but you got to actually, you got to think about it. He says, we have to think about what we think about. Think about that. We have to think about what we think about. What he's saying here is we have to consider the filter, how we filter what happens to us, how what has happened to us makes us filter things certain ways, and even how as we look ahead, we're filtering things. We have to think about the way that we think about stuff. As a little kid, I often wondered about how people thought about things. Because as, even as a little kid, I noticed that there were older folks that I interacted with who reacted to things very differently. And there was this one older couple in particular that I couldn't understand how they reacted to stuff. Their names were Mr. and Mrs. McKelvey, and they sat across the aisle from us in church. And he was really old when I was really young. They're no longer with us. And she wasn't much younger. He was old enough that his pants, the waistline was always up here. Right? Remember that style? And he wore suspenders. I did, couldn't figure out why. He could have used a shoelace, probably. They're already high enough. But he had this condition. He had basically this, this medical ailment where his head constantly shook. And they had a daughter. And I think it was their only child. To my knowledge, it was. And she was a missionary in Africa. And they never got to see her. And yet, every time I interacted with Mr. and Mrs. McKelvey, they were always smiling. And he gave me candy. And they always said nice things. And even as a little kid, like six, seven, eight years old, I thought, what's wrong with these people? Like, his head won't quit shaking. Her health isn't much better. They got to miss their daughter. What's going on? How can they live this life? And I saw them often enough and regularly enough that it could, they couldn't have just been faking it, right? Eventually, they would have broken down a little bit. He'd have run out of Werther's eventually. But they were always able to respond in a way that didn't make sense to me. And the reason is because I believe that their lenses, their filters, their cognitive biases allowed them to frame their reality in a way that I'm only just beginning to understand. I think they had this figured out, if I'm honest. And they didn't even have Craig Rochelle, but they had the Holy Spirit who was working in and through their life in a mighty and powerful way. They were living out what is our take-home point for today. And it's the one point that I'm going to seek to make from Scripture that we get to take with us and live out this week, and it's this. When things don't go the way that we planned, we get to reframe our minds 
in light of God's plan. So when things don't go the way we plan, we get to reframe our minds in light of God's plan. Before we look at that a little bit closer here, let's pray. Father God, we would ask and pray that right now by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would open our, our hearts and our minds to receive your truth. Lord, we thank you and praise you for all that you've done and all that you will continue to do. Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. And Lord, you lead and guide and direct us every moment of every day. Lord, we thank you for your goodness, your love, and your mercy. Lord, may we heed well what you have for us as we look into your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we all have these cognitive biases, and these are the lenses or filters by which we really begin to interpret our reality. But I ask the question, how do we begin to know what our own particular cognitive biases are? And Craig Rochelle says one of the best ways for us to begin to help to identify, to help us identify our cognitive bias is to look for where we are trying to control people, places, or circumstances. We start by looking where we're trying to control people, places, or circumstances. As Pastor Chris often says, if we don't trust something, we're going to try to control that thing or that person or that circumstance. We're going to try to control it. And what Pastor Craig Rochelle says is, those are markers that there may be a cognitive bias lurking there. So when we seek control, what we're really looking for is to have the ability to have something turn out the way that we want it to, right? That's what we want, is we think that if we just control this thing well enough, it's going to turn out the way that I want it to. Think about all the messages we've heard throughout our lives. If you just marry the right person, if you just go to the right school, if you just get the right degree, if you just get the right job, then what? Then it'll go well, right? Until it doesn't. When we think about what we can actually control, that list is pretty small. It's a pretty small list, and yet we are always trying to control so many aspects of our lives. And it may go well until the storm hits, or until the trial happens, or until the challenge occurs, or someone lets us down, or we let someone else down, and then our control is lost. So what are we seeking to control? As I mentioned, there are some exercises in this book that I have found very helpful, and this is the first exercise. It helps us to identify our cognitive biases. And it is quite simply that some point throughout this week, we'll take a moment today or later this week to list the areas that we are seeking to control regarding people, places, or circumstances. So sometime this week, we get to take a moment and think about what we're trying to control regarding people, places, or circumstances. I'll tell you, for some of us, we're going, I think I can start there. And others of us are going, I, I'm a little lost. That's okay. That's okay. It'll become a little clearer as we work through the message today. But as you begin to do this, some of these biases will begin to crop up. And again, I found these exercises to be helpful. And to help you out, later on in the message today, I'm going to actually share with you some of my cognitive biases, okay? And that may help you jumpstart some of yours as well. So, as we seek to look at what we can control we realize that there's not a lot that we can't. But there are a few things. Do you know what we can control? 
We can control how we perceive things. We can control how we perceive things, how we filter the things in our lives. Again, this points to the cognitive biases that we are going to identify so that when something happens to us, we don't just react, but we're going to think about what we think about. As we do that, we're doing something called reframing. Okay? And all reframing is, is that it allows us to look past our old filters and lenses, and it allows us to view the world in a new way. We're going to explain that here a little bit. But if this all sounds like too good to be true, mumbo-jumbo, self-help kind of stuff, I'd just ask you to stick with me while we look at the life of a guy named the Apostle Paul. Because the Apostle Paul did some incredible reframing in his life and actually sets an example for many of us. Now, if you don't know who the Apostle Paul is or you've yet to encounter him in the Bible, I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version of his life, okay? So he starts out named Saul. And Saul, as a young guy, was very prominent in the Jewish community. He was a Jewish leader, and he did not like Christians. He did not like Christians so much that he actively went out and persecuted the faith which means that if he found Christians, he would oftentimes arrest them, and some folks got killed in the process, right? And as he was on the road to a city called Damascus, the Lord actually encountered him. Jesus encountered him on the road. And Paul's, well, Saul's entire life changed, and so did his name. He shifted from Saul to Paul. And he actually adopted the Christian faith, the faith that he was just persecuting, and began to boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus. It's pretty incredible. And he did this to such an extent that he became a leader in the early church. And then he and a couple other traveling companions over the years traveled throughout the Mediterranean area, establishing and founding churches. It's pretty incredible. You can read about it in the book of Acts. His life reads like an action film. And we know that from the Bible that Paul desperately really desperately wanted to go to Rome. He wanted to go to the hub of the Roman Empire to do what? Well, he wanted to see the sights. He wanted to have some hummus. You know, he wanted to try the pasta. No, he wanted to go to Rome to plant a church. And you know what? He got to go in chains because he was arrested for the faith that he once persecuted And they took him to Rome as a prisoner. And while he was in prison, he wrote letters to the churches that he founded, some of which were challenging and some of which were to some dear friends. And we get to hear his account of what God was doing in and through the ministry that he had given Paul in Rome. You're like, what ministry? Well, that's what we think, right? Because Paul's in chains. He's chained between two guards 24-7. He can't leave. For all intents and purposes, it seems like his ministry is over. But that's not what we we read in the book of Philippians. Now, as we read through this account, there's something very important for us to keep in mind. Paul's situation did not change. It didn't change. But how he viewed it did. His situation was not great. But how he viewed it did. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, we read this. 
Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Wow. Isn't that awesome? Here's the letter that I probably would have written. Hi, friends. God's rejected me. My life consists of hanging out between two dudes all day. And that's awful. I don't know that I would have written that letter, but we could have written that letter. Paul could have written that letter, right? That could have been his letter. God's rejected me. This is my life goal to plant a church, and I don't get to do it. But that's not what he did. Let's look at his reframing a bit more in depth. In verse 12, he says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. How was he able to see that? Because he was able to see what God was doing, not what he wanted. So much of life, my friends, is it doesn't turn out the way that we want. And Paul was able to see that in this moment. Paul saw what God was doing in the midst of, the cha- of his chains. He saw how God was using this experience to further his gospel. And Paul suffered for it mightily and yet rejoiced in the midst of it. In verse 13 and 14, we read, As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. There's not too much to expound on there because what Paul did, how he responded, impacted everyone else around him. You can see that, right? Right? The gospel's lifted up. And because of that, people that don't know Jesus come to know Jesus. And those that do know Jesus are so encouraged by what they're seeing in Paul's life, they're probably going, how can he do that? Just like I thought with Mr. and Mrs. McKelvey. How can they do that? And yet, because he reframed it and saw what God was doing in the midst of it, people were emboldened to proclaim the name of Jesus. Things didn't go the way Paul planned. But he was able to see what God was doing in the midst of it, in the present, in the now. This leads us to our second exercise where we get to reframe our present Right? We begin to, by identifying our cognitive biases, and then we get to reframe our present. Pastor Groeschel says there are four things that we get to do. The first is stay calm, don't react. They have t-shirts about that. You can pick one up. It might be helpful. The second is identify the situation. What is actually happening here? Right? The third is identify your automatic thoughts. Why am I thinking what I'm thinking? And the fourth is, <laughs> this is hard, but we actually have to find objective, supportive evidence. Is this valid or is this a cognitive bias? Am I just reacting to something or is this valid? Sometimes it's valid. Most of the time it's not. I'll give you an illustration that has happened in the past couple of weeks that will show you how to perhaps do this part way. Because I'm still working through these exercises as well. So a couple of weeks ago, we got to celebrate 
the life, the death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on Easter, right? And like so many of you, our families, my family gathered together, and I said as a wonderful son, as a benevolent husband, as a dutiful brother, I will grill the steaks, right? I will, I will fall on that sword, ladies in the house, so you don't have to worry about the meat that I will make for you, and it will be awesome and good, right? Now, for many of us, when we go to prepare a meal for loved ones, there's a little extra stress, a little extra pressure, but for me, I have a couple of cognitive biases that if I'm not on my guard, they can sabotage this whole thing, right? Remember I told you I'd share some of my cognitive biases. Are you ready? Those of you that know me well in the room, these will be shockers to you. Uh, And as you recoil in reaction, just try not to knock over the chairs. But I want things to be perfect. And I will work like crazy to have whatever is in my mind actually come out into reality. I don't know why I'm this way. I'm still working through those. There's not a couch big enough up here for me to lay down and talk that through with you. But just know that there is an image in my mind, and I will work like crazy to hit it, right? Because things need to be done with excellence, and they need to be done well. Those are my cognitive biases. That's a couple of them. We don't have time for all of them. So sometimes those biases are really helpful. Do you know when they're not? when you're about to grill steaks. Because I enter what's known as the zone. I had an old coworker who used to call it business mode. She would say, Barry's in business mode. What that means is I've got a task, I've got a target, and Katie bar the door because we're going to get that target. And it's going to turn out the way that I want it to. It just is. And what happens is when I get into the zone, I get tunnel vision. I don't talk to people. My responses are clipped and short. I'm not mad, I'm focused. Sorry. And it will turn out the way that I want it to unless there's a slight deviation. And if that starts to happen, things start to get fuzzy. Like if your grill catches on fire, which may or may not have happened because my sister doesn't know how to appropriately apply marinade. (laughs) Yeah, it looked like the Exxon Valdez oil spill and kids just throwing matches onto our grill. And I'm looking out the door, just watching smoke billow from my Weber going, this isn't good. And in that moment, do you know what I thought? If I don't save this, I'll be a failure. What? These are steaks. Now, they're very nice steaks. But a failure? Oh, come on. And so I start to fix the issue. And I'm already focused. And I'm halfway through this whole thing. And my wife says to me, are you okay? And that snapped me back to reality. And praise God, because I've been working through these things for about a year, I went, I'm trying to aim, a, I'm aiming at a target that I'm not going to hit. This is a cognitive bias. I am not responding rationally. I worked through those four steps very quickly. And I went out, and I turned down the grill, and those steaks were incredible. Now, were they the way I wanted them to be? No. But unless Jesus came down and kissed them, they wouldn't be the way I wanted them to be. This wouldn't, because the image in my head isn't achievable. Was I perfect? No. But 10 years ago, I'd have been throwing stuff. So I'll take progress in the midst of some of this. So while we get to reframe our present, we also need to reframe our past. Now, I'll be honest, this is challenging. 
because there have been things that have happened to us that sometimes we would rather just let go. But what we know is that when we go back and look at our past and we, we reframe it, we get to see where God was in the midst of it. And we also get to see where sometimes He allowed things to not go the way we wanted for our good. Not always, but sometimes. Pastor Groeschel says this, Sometimes we need to thank God for what He didn't do. Developing that discipline helps us reframe our past. We are wise when we trust God is working, even when we aren't aware of it. We're also wise when we trust the way He's working, even when it isn't the way we want. Because instead of feeling like a victim of random circumstances in a chaotic world, you see that you have a God who protected you, often from yourself, in ways you didn't realize. I'll be honest, friends, this is challenging. It is not easy. But as we walk through our past, we're able to see where God intervened, where He took some next steps that we couldn't take. I've had an opportunity throughout my time as a pastor to pray over folks over some really difficult situations. And oftentimes during those prayers, I'll ask, where's Jesus in the midst of this? And I have yet to encounter one person who hasn't seen Jesus there. Doing something for our good. Because Jesus is always there. Because we're led and guided by the Holy Spirit, who is an active part of our lives. And, as Pastor Groeschel states, Jesus is often interceding, or he's actively participating and protecting us in ways that we couldn't even imagine. I sometimes think that if God was just to take a day off, I wouldn't want to be on earth that day. Because he's protecting us from far more than we know. And that knowledge allows us to see that God knows what is best and he's working for our good in the midst of it, just as the Apostle Paul was able to do when he wrote to the Philippians. This leads us to our third exercise, we get to reframe our past. And that means that as we pause and reflect this week, we're going to think about hopes, dreams, or relationships that have faded, or the prayers that have gone unanswered. Where was Jesus and his goodness in the midst of it? Where can we thank him for what he didn't do? I'm not going to sugarcoat this, this is hard. But there is fruit to be found there. In addition to our past and our present, we also get to pre-frame our future. According to Pastor Groeschel, I love this image. He says, you're going to find what you're looking for. And he uses the image of a vulture versus a hummingbird. Because vultures are looking for what? Dead stuff. What are hummingbirds looking for? Beautiful flowers. And let's be honest, friends, we have all encountered people and we have all been the person who has occasionally been the Eeyore. You all know who Eeyore is, right? Winnie the Pooh? Well, I guess it's going to rain today. Probably shouldn't have got out of bed today. It's not going to turn out well. We've all been that person. Why? Because we just react to the situation. We will find what we're looking for. He says this, Preframing is choosing how I will view something before it happens. Instead of getting there and letting my old way of looking at things take over, leading me to interpret what might be positive as negative, I proactively choose the frame I will use to evaluate my experience. Again, there's a precedence for this in Scripture. In Psalm 118, verse 24, we read, This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice 
or we will rejoice and be glad in it. I need that on a bumper sticker in front of every car I'm driving behind some days. Because if we were to wake up and declare that when we, when we just before we hit the floor in the morning, it would allow us to preframe what the Lord will do. This isn't to say that life isn't challenging at times. This isn't to say that terrible things don't happen. And this isn't to say that occasionally, sometimes, we may need help walking through some of these things. I'm so thankful for the folks in my life who have helped me navigate challenges in life. But this is saying that, by and large, we like to look at the negative far more than the positive in most everything that we do. And that's not the way that the Lord has created us. He has created us to ultimately rely on Him and see what He's doing, even if we are chained between two Roman soldiers. And that doesn't mean that our life will be easy, but it does mean that ultimately what He's doing is good, and we get to be a part of that. So we get to walk out what is our fourth exercise for this week, pre-frame the future. What is upcoming that I can reframe in light of what God's doing? Friends, as we begin to identify those biases in our lives, as we look at our present and we think through, is this reasonable and rational or is this a cognitive bias that's beginning to crop up in my life? As we do that for the present, as we look at our past and as we pre-frame our future, we have the opportunity in and through that to rely on God in a whole new way and to see the way that He's working that ultimately takes our eyes off of what? Ourselves. And looks at what He has going on and seeing how He has moved. As we do so, as we look at our past, our present, and our future, we'll be living out our next step for today, which is this. I'll invest some time reframing my past, present, and future this week. I'd invite you to do that along with the rest of us here at New Life who continue to take next steps for His honor and His glory, knowing that He does great and powerful things, and we're fortunate to get to play a part. Amen? Amen. If you're here today and you've yet to take the next step of knowing Jesus, some of this may not make sense. You may be here today and you're going, I sh- I've walked through some of that but the Jesus part just doesn't make sense. And that's okay. All of us in this room at some point did not know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. No one comes from the womb knowing Jesus in that way. But we get to. We get to. Here at New Life, we say it's simple, but it's not easy. It's simple, but it's not easy. We come to a point in our lives where we realize that we need Him as our Lord and Savior, Lord simply means that he's our owner and as a result gets to tell us what to do, right? Savior means he saved us from ourselves and from sin and death. So as we walk that out, we come to an understanding that we need him in our lives. And if that's you here today, I'd invite you to take the next step by doing what we say is as simple as A, B, C, admit, believe, confess. We admit that we're sinners in need of a Savior We believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is our Savior and Lord, and we confess that Jesus is our Savior and Lord, and then we commit to following him in the power of the Holy Spirit. If that's you here today, I would encourage you that in a moment, I'm going to pray, 
And so why not take that next step today, coming to know him as Savior and Lord, and walking out the next step that will be the first of many as you come into a loving relationship with him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you for all that you've done and you will continue to do. Lord, I would ask that right now that any who do not know you, that you would prompt their hearts, that you would speak and minister to their spirits as only you can. And Lord, that they would come to a point of realizing their need for you, that they would accept you as Savior and Lord, simply by saying something like, Lord Jesus, I need you. I admit I'm a sinner in need of your grace. I believe that you are the Son of God, and I confess that I need you more than life itself. And I commit to following you for the rest of my days. Lord, we thank you and praise you for the opportunity we have to come to know you, to be in relationship with you. And Lord, that you lead and guide and direct us every step of the way. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.